Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Despite what colonization tells us, Treaty 1 land belongs to the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Ocha Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The provincial and federal governments in Canada carried out, and continue to carry out, genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal on this land. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. We all continue to be affected today. Indigenous peoples are powerful and resilient, and they are recognized leaders in the fight against capitalism. And there's a lot to learn from the culture and teachings that will help heal our relationship with the land and with each other. The topic of today's podcast is COVID-19 and the Manitoba Suppress the Virus campaign. Uh, so I want everyone to go through and kind of say their name um, so we know your voice. So Robbie. My name's Robbie. Hey, Robbie. Nope. Deslin. Hello, I'm Jesslyn. Jesslyn. David. Hello. And I'm Posey. And today, uh, David is going to be facilitating our discussion. So take it away, David. Okay, thanks. I'm going to say a few things about the, the big picture when it comes to the pandemic uh, before we start talking about what's happened in Manitoba. Um, so we're talking about the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, this is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it's a zoonotic virus. In other words, it's a virus that moved from another animal species into the human species. Um, and there are lots of these viruses. So the, the Spanish flu of 1918 um, it was actually probably originally, it was a, it was a bird uh, virus that probably originated among ducks, probably in Kansas. Uh, and then it went global, uh, transported around the world by the coal-fueled uh, ships, which were the early 20th century fossil fuel-driven uh, mode of transport. And it killed something like 50 million people within 18 months. Uh, it's only called the Spanish flu because of where it was reported that Spain didn't have censorship because it wasn't directly involved in the First World War. Um, it didn't start in Spain. Um, and so we're talking about with, with this virus, SARS-CoV-2, a, a zoonotic uh, virus which originated in bats. Um, whether it started in bats and went to another animal species and then to humans, and, or whether it went directly from bats to humans, there's still scientific debate about that. There's uncertainty. Um, People may have heard about the pangolin, may, may have been an animal involved in this process, but um, started in bats. Uh, and Wuhan, China was the really the point of origin. And then it spread globally through air travel. Um, thanks in particular to how really uh, infectious this virus is when people uh, don't yet have any symptoms, which is different from the SARS virus that happened back in 2002, um, where people developed symptoms and then became highly contagious. This one highly contagious before you actually develop symptoms, which is one of the reasons it spreads the way it does. So I wanted to say something about um, zoonotic infectious diseases because they're becoming more common, unfortunately. Um, and what people talk about, scientists talk about a spillover from other animal species to humans uh, becomes more common as biodiversity decreases. Uh, and these hotspots spillovers um, you know, are the same places where deforestation is really uh, extreme. So um, 
we should think about the connection to capitalism here because you know deforestation is a result of the capitalist production of commodities. Think about the huge expansion of the production of beef, soybean, palm oil, and wood, all of these things driving deforestation. And something else that plays a role in zoonotic spillover is eating wild animals, whether that's bats, rodents, or primates. Um, it's not as big a driver as, uh, as deforestation, but it's also worth mentioning. And this both happens when poor people uh, hunt for food and also when rich and middle-class people uh, eat wild animals because those, uh, you know, have a high status. So it's kind of a luxury product. Um, so that's another way that we can see capitalism driving these zoonotic spillovers. So what about this virus, SARS-CoV-2 in, in China? There's nothing unique about China or Chinese culture that plays a role here. So, um, you know, just like you get super exploitation of low-wage workers who don't have very many rights all over the world, you have the burning of coal over the world, you have the conditions for zoonotic spillover all over the world. So these, these things are not unique to China. Um, Andreas Mom, a Swedish eco-socialist, um, he puts it this way. He says, global tendencies were present in a concentrated form in China. So it's nothing unique about, uh, about China. It's about global processes that are concentrated. It happened to be there. So, um, you know, whether it was a, from a bat to a pangolin to a human and, and then among humans, or whether it went bat to human to human, um, a market in wild animals is likely something that played a key role. You know, it's quite possible that rich young men consuming wild animal products as a status symbol might have played a role here. But then, you know, the virus went global uh, through air travel, 21st century's fossil fuel, uh, you know, capitalist mode of transportation par excellence, going from Wuhan to Bangkok, Tokyo, Seattle, Seoul, Stockholm, and beyond. Um, you just remember how air travel is, you know, most common amongst people in rich countries, um, and especially, of course, better off people. So we can see again how capitalism has driven the, the spread of this virus. And Andreas Mom uh, says something which I think is worth thinking about. He says, imagine that COVID-19 would have jumped from Iran into Iraq in February 2020, killing a couple of thousand in Basra and Baghdad, then leapfrogging to Haiti, killing another 5,000 before swerving down to Bolivia and Mozambique, taking out another few batches of the same size, while the number of patients hovered in the lower hundreds in London, Paris, and New York. It is not a far-fetched conjecture that governments of the global north would then have let the virus fester. Right? So the fact that the virus you know, hit the rich countries as quickly as it did uh, was important in understanding why the response was the way that it was. So... If we step back and just look at the big picture, I think when it comes to capitalism and zoonotic disease pandemics, we can see that uh, there is more uh, of this ahead because capital is driven by the never-ending search for profit to expand without limit into the rest of nature. And the more that it does so, the stronger there's going to be a blowback from pathogens, um, viruses, bacteria, fungi, whatever, um, into society. And that's what's happened in this particular case. It's, you know, it fits in that broader pattern. And it, there's a kind of a parallel to capitalism and climate change. The more that capitalist societies burn fossil fuels and destroy forests and expand capitalist agriculture, the more we get greenhouse gases and uh, the more severely climate change is going to affect society. So unfortunately, uh, 
the processes that have caused this pandemic are set to give us more pandemics in, in the future as well. So that's the big picture. Let's talk about Manitoba. Yeah, so I think um, in Manitoba here, we've, we've seen the PC government fail with respect to effectively managing and controlling transmission in the province. Um, they've been more focused on balancing the budget and even passing more um, austerity legislation as numbers um, of COVID had kind of crept up in the province here in the fall. In August, the province had announced the uh, Restart Manitoba campaign uh, to begin economic recovery, um, and they were more focused on that, despite knowing that a second wave would be ramping up in the coming months and the impact would be greater than the first wave. Um, the Premier thinks his approval ratings is related to him laying down the law and putting tighter restrictions in place and stopping churchgoers. But what he's failed to acknowledge is that Manitobas are not happy with his pandemic response policy because he's ultimately failed to keep Manitobans safe. His government has been slow to identify transmission, they have not created capacity for mass rapid testing, and their messaging to Manitobans have been confusing. The Manitoba PC government has been cutting funding to public services since being elected in 2016. We've seen decreased spending in healthcare and long-term care facilities, reduction in ambulance stations across the province, a decrease of ICU beds and emergency rooms and quick care clinics. Um, we've also seen a reduction in healthcare staff. We've seen massive budget cuts to education, social services, and income assistance, and we've seen the privatization of many public services. So when you think about all of these cuts, you recognize that there's a larger problem at play. The PC government is more interested in economic profit over human life. The deaths and economic hardship and the current social and physical well-beings of Manitobans were completely avoidable. Now, with respect to um, who is more likely to get COVID-19 and who's been most affected, we know that social determinants of health like age, sex, ethnicity, income, and education have a huge impact on infection rate and death rates of COVID-19. Higher poverty rates, overcrowded housing, and work conditions are all associated with higher rates of transmission and mortality. In Manitoba, we are seeing the virus spread most through the 20 to 29 age group and the 30 to 39 age group is trailing close behind. COVID disproportionately affects older adults and folks with pre-existing health conditions. These two demographics are more likely to have serious complications from the disease and worse, the death rate is much higher for them. I think it's also important to note that institutionalized residential facilities are seeing COVID-19 cases at a much higher rate compared to the general population. Long-term care facilities across the country are dealing with massive outbreaks with devastating effects, and the effects have been the worst in the private long-term care facilities. So take, for example, uh, Rivera, long-term care facilities here in Winnipeg. Um, there's also been many outbreaks in correctional institutions across the province and country as well. And something that I think is really important to stress here is that um, Indigenous folks have also been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. So as of December 4th, 2020, the test positivity rate in Manitoba for Indigenous folks is around 20%, and it's about 6 to 7% higher than that reported for the rest of the province. 
And I think it's also worth noting that we don't have test positivity rates uh, being reflected for the Indigenous community and the non-Indigenous community. However, we can assume that within this um, population or the, the, the differences between these two populations that the number is even higher than that six to seven percent. Yeah, so I'm going to briefly talk about what the NDP is doing or hasn't been doing. Um, as Jeslin's laid out, the PCs have overwhelmingly failed Manitobans, and most Manitobans know that. I think at this point we're all familiar that Pastor is the least popular premier in Canada right now. Uh, so the NDP response thus far has kind of been stopping the bleeding or trying to demand specific um, specific resources for things that have been cut. So trying to stop cuts or calling out Palestine government for expired PPE or um, cutting jobs. And then a lot of the additive things that they've been asking for have been things that aren't even enough. So stopping evictions and freezing utility bills, but not providing rent relief. Um, to, quote, keep pharmacare affordable, uh, whatever that means, to give help for vulnerable families. So the things that they are asking for are obviously needed, um, but they're not providing an alternative public health policy plan. So maybe they have, but I haven't heard it from them, their website, or the news, uh, that the NDP is not actually asking for an elimination of the virus. They're not asking to stop community spread. They're providing a lot of critique to the PC government. Um, and this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody either, just as the fact that the Conservatives are failing and are putting profit over people shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise that NDP is asking for small reforms um, because the NDP fundamentally accepts neoliberalism in general. They're just trying to make reforms within that system. Wab Canoe's call to Manitobans when the youngest person from COVID-19 died in, in Manitoba, a uh, child, was that people need to stay home. And that's pretty much the same messaging that we're getting from the, from the Conservatives. An individual-minded response where it is the responsibility of each Manitoban to stay home without any sort of supports or long-term plan or goal for how to stop the virus. Yeah, so. well, I mean, just as like, uh, you know, I was a high schooler and speak, like talking to anybody at my school, nobody knows, even knows what the NDP is doing. Like nobody really knows what the uh, PCs are doing either. You know, they know it's bad, but they just don't know what the NDP is doing. Like. It's like they're not even there. Yeah, I think that's telling. And it and it points out, you know, the inadequacy of what the NDP is doing as the official opposition. And I think that takes us to the question of what's the alternative if the government has brought us to this terrible place um, and the NDP is not providing an alternative. And, you know, it's, it's taken a while, but there is now an alternative uh, that's been put forward by Communities Not Cuts with its Suppress the Virus Manitoba campaign. And so it's worth understanding what this is about and, and maybe how it took a little while to, to get to it. Um, that I think a lot of the, the broad left in Canada, um, you know, had, had had difficulty figuring out um, how to 
orient around this crisis of the pandemic. Um, and it's not just because the left is pretty fragmented. It's also often politically pretty weak in the sense of not having sharp enough analysis or being able to think about how to move from, you know, an analysis of a situation to coming up with a, a plan of action or an approach. Um, and on the radical left, um, you know, we've generally not had a lot to say about science and, and public health. Um, some people, a lot of people uncritically defend science against the the right and that's kind of understandable when we've had climate change denialists to deal with and, and that kind of problem um and you get some people who are critical of science in the wrong way you know whether that's anti-vaxxers or conspiracy theorists or people who are into unproven alternative medicine um you know or some opposing public health measures around covid fortunately there hasn't been too much of that on the left in in canada um you know the last time there was a really big uh, politicization around a, a health issue on a, on a large scale, I think, was really around HIV/AIDS uh, in the 80s and 90s. If you're talking about, you know, in Canada, um, and so radical left wasn't really well prepared for this either. Um, and you know, it's taken a long time for a lot of people to understand that uh, public health is political. It's not a neutral or technical thing. You know, microbiology is, you know, pretty pretty much a, a more more neutral or technical thing, although, of course, all forms of science in a capitalist society are never going to be outside of capitalism. They're going to be shaped by it in different ways. But um, there's a big difference between something like microbiology and public health, where you're actually dealing with um, all sorts of, of social uh, questions, uh, questions about how society is organized and how, how power shapes society. Um, and so it's taken a while for people to not just do the absolutely necessary um, things around demanding what's needed right now to help healthcare workers, for example, or to um, you know support people who are and fight fight for for more supports for people who've lost their jobs and and many other um, important struggles. Um, but in terms of actually coming up with an alternative strategy for the responding to the pandemic, it's it's taken some time, and uh, so we we've, we've seen you know. Some people more recently began to begin to put forward these kinds of um, approaches. There was a really great article by Daniel Sarah Karasik published on the website of Briarpatch called Suppress the Virus Now. There have been uh, scientists and medical researchers who've been using the hashtag uh, COVID zero coming out with a similar approach. And that's inspired here in Manitoba, this Communities Not Cuts Suppress the Virus Manitoba campaign, um, which is putting forward an alternative public health strategy, one that would actually work uh, and that worked to, that is to suppress the virus and which would do it with a social justice approach. So let's go through this approach. Let's go through what the campaign's calling for. Yeah, so I'm going to read them out. And one thing I did want to add about that uh, Daniel Sarah Karasik article for Briar Patch that kind of crystallized some things for me when I read it, be, partly because the NDP, uh, both federally and provincially, hadn't really said this before, but that there needs to be um, a suppression of the virus in order for it to be socially just from the get-go, uh, that it's not just about supports, that it has to be an overwhelming agreement that community spread needs to be stopped because we know that this virus is affecting most vulnerable um, most vulnerable more than anyone else. And I think that the term that Karasek used was capitalist eugenics. Um, 
that if we don't decide to suppress the virus, that's basically what we're asking for. So I'm going to read out these one by one, and then each of us is going to kind of give a little explainer of uh, what each of these calls is. So the first one, implement a serious lockdown to drive COVID cases down to extremely low numbers, what epidemiologists call suppression. Right. So when it comes to, you know, lockdowns, we should recognize that as uh, Corbin Russell, who's a Toronto-based researcher, has put it, you know, lockdowns are a sign that we've had a failure of public health, but when public health fails, you need to have lockdowns. Uh, so the, the idea here would be to have a, a really full-fledged lockdown that would try to drive down uh, the number of infections to a very, very low number. So that's what happened in the Australian state. It's the Australian equivalent of a province uh, of Victoria. Uh, it took about three months, but they actually went from the end of July um, for about three months and, and succeeded now in really uh, actually eliminating uh, community spread. They've, uh, it took a very you know, aggressive lockdown, but that was accomplished and it's been done elsewhere too. So that inspires this particular demand. So what, what would be the difference between this kind of lockdown and the one we have now? Because this one isn't really doing anything. Yeah, well, it's it's certainly you know not done enough. Um, I think that you would have to have it be more comprehensive, and it would have to include schools, for example. Um, there's a new article by Bartley Kivas uh, on the CBC website that just pointed out um, after was recent briefing from the from the Met Officer of Health that you know being told we dodged a bullet in November is not very comforting when we were also when we also found out the pistol could have been stored in the basement in October, right? Um, we wouldn't, if measures had been taken aggressively in October, we wouldn't be in a situation where we would need this kind of lockdown now. But uh, unfortunately, because this is where the, the government has brought us, you know, a more extensive, uh, more systematic lockdown would, uh, would really be needed. And I think it's important to note here, too, that uh, it does feel like we've been in a lockdown for such a long time and we're all feeling the effects of this. But our, our government, our provincial government was slow to even get us to this point. So had they been in it, like what David was saying, had we done this initial lockdown quick, we probably wouldn't be here where we are right now. And I think we do have to see these numbers plateau for a while before we'll start to see them decrease. Yeah. And I would also, I don't know if someone's already said this, but the media keeps on calling what we have currently a lockdown. Uh, but of course it isn't a lockdown, right? <laughs> Schools are still open. There's still a lot of mobility um, or they're calling it a partial lockdown. And there are a lot of non essential industries in Manitoba that are still open. And people are still being expected to go to work. Um, so when you don't have the option to work from home um, or your employer is not uh, implementing strategies for people to work from home, you're still going to see that spread. Definitely. Okay. So number two is create the capacity for mass rapid testing quick and effective contact tracing, and an isolation strategy for those who test positive, what epidemiologists call mitigation. So I think that one's a, maybe a bit more straightforward uh, for people, but partly because the testing and contact tracing in Manitoba thus far has been really bad. 
there were a couple articles back in October and November about how um, people were testing positive and waiting a week to hear from anybody about what to do, um, getting no follow-ups. There were reports from volunteer contact tracers that they were told to stick to five-minute scripts and they weren't allowed to talk to people any longer. Um, even the fact that we're relying on volunteers as well as some paid professionals to do contact tracing is pretty bad, I would say. Um, and to this, I also wanted to talk about, so there was an article just yesterday in the Globe and Mail by Willow Fiddler about um, the Pima Chickamac uh, Cree First Nation here in Manitoba and how they were able to stop an outbreak um, last month, or maybe it was in October. Uh, there was a funeral there, uh, 200 people went to the funeral and there was an outbreak at the funeral. So what they did to respond to this um, was they went into a full lockdown. They isolated more than 200 people, um, sending them to Winnipeg to isolate in hotels. It was a supported isolation. And so there ended up being 70 positive cases from the outbreak, but that they were able to uh, stop that from spreading any farther. And it took five weeks um, to stop community transmission completely. So it really does take quite a lot. Um, you know, I think there was only one person at that funeral that was positive that caused that outbreak. Um, and they had a response team of 23 people that included emergency response workers, doctors, nurses, elected leadership, social workers, and others who ensure supports are in place for people to safely isolate and lock down. So kind of what Justin was saying about how a lockdown isn't really possible if people aren't supported, the same with isolation. So if you test positive or if you are in close contact with someone who tests positive, it's not enough to just tell someone, stay home, good luck. Um, we have to make sure that people are able to safely isolate. So that means making sure that they have a roof, that they aren't living in close quarters with people. If they are, that they have somewhere else to go that they have food, that they have medicine and other, um, other health supplies. Um, so, you know, it takes a lot of resources to do this. And I think that we've seen with Manitoba's response thus far is they really aren't willing to even provide resources to the normal healthcare system, let alone adding any extra resources or maintaining any extra resources for pandemic mitigation. So what we're asking for, or what Communities Not Cuts is asking for, is to invest in professionals um, to make sure that when we do have cases, that we identify them, that we find who they're in contact with, and that we provide the resources for people to isolate safely so that it doesn't spread any further. So does anyone have any questions about that one? I didn't really talk about testing. There, there is talks of rapid testing versus other types of testing um, that I didn't really get into because honestly, I, I find my eyes kind of glaze over when I read about testing. But um, I mean, I think testing, it is important. Like we yeah. need to be testing, uh, you know, on a really wide scale really with quick results. Um, 
you know, you don't need the same level of sensitivity the, the, uh, that's used in a diagnostic setting for the kind of mass testing that uh, you, you want if you actually want to eventually be able to reopen. And I guess that's the other thing that's worth mentioning is that te really extensive testing, contact tracing, supported isolation is what you need to have in place so you can reopen after the lockdown and not reopen the way it happened in Manitoba, where reopening happened without any of these things in place. So surprise, surprise, look where we ended up. Yeah, kind of the only thing we got was a mask mandate, right? And that's kind of the bare minimum. Yeah, I guess one question I have is like, it seems we, like we don't have that many, we're not doing like that much testing, like compared to other places. Like I know Vietnam, they have like no COVID cases now. And I think at one point they said they'd tested 11 million people. What's like the difference between what uh, what we have and what we can do versus what they have and that what they can do because like I, Vietnam's not as like wealthy even as as Manitoba. What's what's the difference? Why can't we do that? I think we can do that. I think our governments decided not to do that. That's the difference. Um, they have and kind of what we had talked a bit about earlier is that they've been so focused on restarting the economy that they have neglected to keep Manitobans safe and healthy and alive. Um, whereas, you know, Vietnam, if they've decided that they want to make sure that COVID cases are down to zero, they've done that. Um, it's really disappointing to see because we have a premier who will put on the waterworks every single time he comes to speak to the public, um, but then can't seem to connect the dots really to know why we're in this certain, in this predicament that we're in right now. Yeah, I think the fact that we even have such a high positivity rate is a, of testing is a, is a real sign that we obviously don't have enough testing if 14.5% of those tested um, are coming back positive. When I was reading about rapid testing, uh, there was kind of a big discussion and a big kind of, you know, Palster made a big deal that we're getting these rapid tests. We only got 4,000 of them, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, I, th I think um, there really could be a lot more done um, with that. Yeah. Well, I know Steinbeck, it's 40%, right? Jeez. And then there's a, a First Nation in the North, I don't remember the name, that's at 50%. Uh, Nikki Ashton just tweeted about that a couple days ago. Yeah. Well, I, know, like, I know like yesterday, like speaking in, about like his, him doing waterworks, he, he said like, oh yeah, I'm the guy who's stealing Christmas is to keep you safe. And it's just like... Well, see, <laughs> like I think I think it's important to kind of say that he is, I, I think he does know how this is spreading and how this is happening, but he's choosing to um, frame it as an individual failing, that it's Manitobans who aren't following the rules and uh, who's the cause of this, that the you know restrictions and policing is what's the only way to the only way to get rid of the virus when we we know and we've known for a long time that that's not true. Um, but that is a, a very convenient lie for them, right? Because it takes all responsibility away from elected governance and puts it onto individual citizens. 
Um, yeah. And also propagates the myth that what's causing it is young people partying because, you know, Jocelyn, when you said that stat about the, in the beginning about it being people between the ages of 20 and 29, we don't know if like how they're getting it. Right. Because um, like, whether that is through partying or through just those, the people who are working um, or, you know, compared to the total population and all those sorts of things. Um, the provincial government is also choosing not to share all the information that they have about who has it and how they got it. That was one of the things that the NDP was asking for back in October is to sh share more of that information. And the government said they would and now still haven't. So I think that they benefit from us knowing as little as possible about who's getting it and how and where so that they can continue to propagate the myth that it's people, um, people having fun, <laughs> uh, which I don't really think is the problem. Well, why do you think like politically speaking, why do you think Palliser is doing this? Cause it makes sense economically. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, he is, uh, up sort of a puppet of a rich. And so he does what they want him to do, but like politically everybody hates him. The anti-mask people hate him because he's put in like any restrictions at all. And everybody else hates him because he's done such a horrible job. It's like... Yeah, it is a pretty hard time. In some ways, it's a hard time to be conservative. The same thing with Kenny when a lot of your base is um, anti-mask. Doesn't uh, believe COVID is even real. Exactly. That does make it hard. But I don't really feel bad for him in the slightest. Um I think that politically, he's probably hoping that people will forget that the vaccine will come. And I don't know, he'll be able to compare Manitoba to other places that did worse. I'm not really sure. Um, that is a, a, a scary forecast of just sometime in the future, nobody remembering this after a vaccine. I think uh, Posey brings up a good point. Um, you know, they, they aren't sharing this information. Um, if we did know the information on how uh, the virus is spreading in our community, we would be able to um, have that knowledge to be able to kind of figure out like what's really happening in the community. But he's controlling the narrative right now. And um, that is a way to control the power. So Politically, that's a tactic that I think this government is using to keep Manitobans uninformed about what's actually going on in the province and who's getting COVID where. And I think in, in general, uh, you know, it feeds into the belief that, well, this is kind of an, un an unavoidable problem and we just have to kind of, you know, live with the virus, right? Uh, and find ways to make it less bad as opposed to recognizing that there is actually an alternative, which is the suppression strategy, right? Um, so it, it, it serves to depoliticize it and to make people feel that it's inevitable. Maybe that would be a good point to bring us back to talk about uh, the third plank of the Communities Not Cuts Suppress the Virus uh, policy. Definitely. So number three is put social and economic supports in place for all Manitobans especially for low-income households and those who have to continue to work outside their homes during the lockdown. 
So I think what we have seen in Manitoba is that there's been cuts all across the board. I had mentioned this earlier. Um, we are seeing the privatization of housing. Our uh, EIA recipients in the province are getting less and less. Um, you know, even the folks who are working for minimum wage, it's pretty hard to be able to survive um, day to day, uh, let alone when you, you mix in a pandemic. Our businesses have had pretty minimal support. Um, and I think this particular point is calling to action that if we need to lock down because um, the, the virus is out of control in our community, we need to do it with these uh, social and economic supports in place so that people can come out of this, out of this lockdown, um, feeling as though that they haven't been set back, um, that they have the support that they've needed to make it through. So whether that be through giving economic supports to businesses, to people, uh, making sure that we're not increasing rent. When we go into a lockdown, we know that people aren't necessarily being able to go to work every day. So we know that Pallister was not a big supporter of CERB. Um, but we also know that without any of these supports in place, people cannot stay at home. And for the folks that do have to go out to work every day, they're really putting their lives on the line. They're putting their families' lives on the line just to be able to make sure that uh, Manitoba can, um, you know, keep functioning. Our grocery store workers, our healthcare workers, our educators, um, you know, we aren't giving them the supports and they are burning out and the demands on them are just, you know, like I can't even begin to imagine how you would feel like to protect yourself and your family at the end of every single work day. So number four, one of my favorites, <laughs> number four is adopt a bottom up approach that actively involves community members and organizations in public health planning and communication efforts and immediately implement the demands put forward by educators and healthcare workers. Yeah, so there's a big difference between the approach that's being called for here and the approach we've seen from the government and you know, public health agencies, which has been completely top down. And it's been a failure in all sorts of ways. Um, it's been a failure when it comes to communications, you know, both there's both the message and the medium, uh, you know, a message which is all about scolding people and, and blaming people uh, is not going to be very effective at trying to, you know, motivate people and encourage people to see how their actions can contribute to, you know, the well-being of people in the community in a, in a collective way. Um, you know, it's just in, in the, the mean, the various ways that the message has been communicated just aren't very effective. Um, I don't know if listeners have heard, uh, seen the uh, really neat German television ad that was going around, um, which was using, you know, humor um, with, uh, you know, the, the, the premise of somebody is talking who's very old, looking back on what happened in 2020 and what was done to, uh, you know, to stay home and, and so on, um, which was, you know, was creative and, and effective at getting the message out. Um, we haven't seen anything like that in the uh, the public health communication that's happened. And so there's the issue of communication and also the question of how you actually, um, you know, make these public health measures effective. You need to actually have the involvement of 
people who are um, at the grassroots level, whether that be people who are um, you know, union activists who know what's going on in workplaces or people who um, are community workers of different kinds, all sorts of different people um, who understand what social life is like um, need to be in, brought, brought into the process of an effective uh, campaign for uh, suppression and mitigation of the virus. I guess this takes us to the fifth plank, the fifth pl the demand. Yes. So how are you going to pay for it? <laughs> Always the question. So number five, implement taxation on major corporations and those with the top 1% of wealth to fund a socially just pandemic response that protects the lives of Manitobans, people over profit. So I'm going to talk about this one, honestly, pretty briefly, because I think this one's quite self-explanatory. Um, and as an anti-capitalist eco-socialist group, we definitely, I would say, all recognize that corporations profiting off of the work of individuals is always exploitative, but especially during a pandemic when people are putting their lives and their health and safety and the health and lives and safety of their families and people they love at risk to create profit for um, big corporations is wrong and evil. Um, and that really corporations shouldn't be making profits and especially not record profits like they are uh, during a pandemic. I think a lot of us have seen the stats of the profits that um, big companies in Canada have made, especially as Jesslyn mentioned, uh, Loblaws and other grocery store chains have made a lot of profit in this time. Uh, they had their hero pay, they cut the hero pay. So it is really the only fair and just way forward um, to have those who are profiting off of this pandemic to help pay for the suppression and mitigation of the pandemic. Uh, and I, it's obviously not the role of the government, a neoliberal capitalist government, corporatist government to do that, but it's, I think, still worth it to demand um, that sort of response. Robbie, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, like, not only have these corporations been uh, getting record profits, they've also, like, been seeing some pretty record uh, labor unrest be because of this pandemic and because of, like, just how, like, in your face it is to these workers that, like, oh, uh, I might get COVID and die. That's we should do something. What if we like all sort of got together in some sort of uh, united group? We call it a union. And uh, these corporations, not fans of unions, um, let, let's say that uh, they engage in various uh, um, extra legal activities to uh, fight against this, which of course, in practice, are legal. I mean. Who's going to prosecute them? Yes, of course. And um, oh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, just I, I think everyone saw, and not even the just the the profit and but the hiding of the cases, right? That it came out this summer that twenty thousand Amazon workers um, were positive for COVID. It really is just purely evil. Oh, the thing I was going to say is there's a great plug another podcast right now there's a great episode of um alberta advantage with seth klein talking about um actually the climate emergency not covid but i think a lot of it applies 
And that episode is uh, Mobilizing for the Climate Emergency, Seth Klein's Good War. And he talks about how there is in Canada, if we are going to work within the state, an example from the Second World War of what it looks like to stop <laughs> corporations um, from profiteering off of labor in a time of crisis. Uh, yeah. I, really I mean, like, recommend that, that yeah. episode. Yeah, during the Second World War, Canada had a planned economy, basically. You know, the federal government gave orders down to the, these factories and say, produce this much of this by this time and for this much money. And bam, that happened. And we had like, Canada had like huge, huge GDP growth. It uh, ended the Great Depression. It, you know, World War II was like the most efficient that the Canadian economy has ever been at least like yeah. at an organizational level. And that's because planned economies are just more efficient. Obviously the yeah. top down nature is, you know, has its brings problems, but it's better than a market. You know, so I think we can see here that this, what's been put forward by communities, not cuts is, you know, a comprehensive alternative policy. Um, with taking a social justice approach to the pandemic, challenging the idea that there's no alternative, right? That's that idea. There's no alternative has been a, a real hallmark of the era of neoliberal capitalism. Uh, and it extends in all sorts of different ways. People believe that the way society is, you know, couldn't be any different or certainly couldn't be any better than it is. Um, and there's a lot of that same kind of fatalistic attitude to the, uh, to the pandemic, but by putting this forward, uh, you know, the argument is that, in fact, there is an alternative. We could actually do what's been done in a whole number of other places um, in terms of actually suppressing the, the virus and then having a reopening that uh, allows us to, to manage, um, prevent, you know, extensive spread, um, which is really important, you know, because the vaccine is not going to become, different vaccines are not going to become available to all, uh, you know, until late in 2021. It's going to be a long process, uh, and you know, we we shouldn't uh, assume that there's nothing that can be done to to that point. Yeah. So just you know, if if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, since I didn't really know anything about this stuff before uh, this recording, what what the uh, idea is to sort of like uh, close down uh, society for a little bit. And like anything that's not absolutely like a hundred percent needed, you know, you get paid to stay home. Basically, um, you get supported. Uh, then also like actually start doing testing, tracing, all, all that jazz. Um, and then finally, uh, th this should basically like uh, sort of starve the virus of any of any oxygen to let it uh, live, right? Yeah, I think that is a, a pretty good summary of it. And I'd also say it's kind of asking the question, what would it look like if the pandemic plan was not about, quote unquote, the economy or saving the economy, but about saving as many lives as possible or reducing as much death and suffering as possible, right? Um, I mean, of course, the economy, we're not talking about the economy, we're talking about... Ching. Yes, you're talking about profits for the for the rich, and they've been doing fine. So, 
that's the thing. It's if that's their plan, it's been working great because the richest Canadians keep getting richer, right? The richest Manitobans keep getting richer. Um, there's some question I, I a question I wanted to pose to the group, um, which was kind of the the goal or the the best case scenario of putting demands like this to the government because as we've established, you know, the government in Manitoba isn't really working for us. Um, so what does presenting these demands and advocating for this campaign uh, do in terms of moving us to a, a, a better present and, and near future? Yeah, well, well I, like, oh, go on. Sorry. I was just going to say that I, I really think that it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's laid out. It's pretty easy to see that, um, there is an alternative and I, I just hope that uh, Communities Not Cuts can continue to build the momentum around this uh, campaign. Um, we've, you know, CMC's really just kind of done, done the, the job for, for the PC government. Um, whether or not they follow suit, uh, I'm not sure, uh, you know, nobody's coming forward with um, alternatives and and CMC is really the the first um, group who who has. So how do we, with that in mind, like how do we get the government to listen? Um, I'm not sure. I think our government is focused more on uh, getting policing strategies from us than you know sending out a mass email to say like what would this look like. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not too sure what how to how to get them to to take this more seriously. Yeah, like well, I mean, yeah. I guess the, the real question is like, how do we exert pressure on the government to do this? I mean, like, I don't know. Just throwing something out in the open, you could like uh, camp outside uh, Brian Pallister's home or something with a bunch of people, but. Uh, I can't imagine the police would be very fine with that. And that's not very COVID friendly. Like, you know, you feel like you're stuck in a rock and a hard place because how do you mobilize from, you know, your, your house when we're being told, and we shouldn't, we really should not be going out and seeing people. We, we do need to get a better grip on this uh, virus, but how do you, you know, make your voice heard, um, in a way that uh, the government's going to listen when you are being kind of confined to your own home. You know, those are, I think, really crucial questions. And uh, there's a lot more that needs to be, you know, talked about by people and hopefully, you know, getting this campaign going by, by doing that CNC, hopefully can generate discussion in various uh, organizations. Uh, and among people more broadly about this, because it's certainly true that you can't rationally persuade this government to adopt this policy. It would have to be a question of putting enough pressure on them to to shift. I mean, in fact, even if they only partially moved in this direction, it could would be a big improvement, right, um, over what's being being done now. And so that brings up the question of you know where is power in society, um, and how can it be exerted on this government? That really you know could have another whole episode about some of that. But, um, you know, the, the working class of this province does have enormous potential power. The problem is that we are, you know, very much atomized and, and fragmented. 
yeah. and and without the kind of organizations that would be needed to really make this happen. But at least by putting this out, uh, Communities Not Cuts has shown, you know, if there is an alternative that can be used to generate discussion and people who, you know, can be one to support this can then be brought into a discussion about what we can do to begin to build the kind of power that we needed to uh, to, to move the government. Yeah. yeah, I think that the the main role of the demands for me is just that kind of expanding imagination, right? That we're not going to accept the terms that this this capitalist realism, this virus realism, live with the virus idea that that is um, a contested reality, and that it needs to be put forward first. That needs to be put forward in order to then, if there are going to be actions, if there are going to be strikes, people really know what they're fighting for. Um, I think it can work as sort of like uh, just a, a pull to sort of ground things for people so that, uh, you know, we're not wandering aimlessly in the dark. That way there there is like uh, something that we can look at uh, for first perspective and to uh, measure things sort of. I think also... You know, we we talk about you know Canadian society being atomized. It doesn't help that like it's illegal to have political strikes, which is just like it. when I learned that it was that was insane. Like if you attached if you were a union and you attach this to your demands, you're committing a crime. Yes, it's you know at times like this when we run up against what labor law does to us uh, in terms of restricting people's ability to act collectively. But of course, there have been examples in the past of people defying those uh, those prohibitions. So um, I think we should make it really clear that we want everybody listening to, to this podcast to support the Communities Not Cuts uh, campaign. And the website that's been created is suppressthevirusmb.ca. Uh, and the campaign is just getting going. So people should not only go to that website and sign the petition, uh, they should get involved in, in the campaign so that CNC has more people uh, to, you know, figure out how we can move this forward. Yeah. Well, yep. say this, you know, uh, sort of a, a disclaimer, uh, nobody here, uh, or, you know, Solidarity Winnipeg does not endorse crime, but <laughs> I, I totally endorse crime. It is awesome. I think that's a great way to end it. Um, we so as David it. said, suppress the virus mb.ca is the place to go if you want to sign the petition. And if you are a part of any organization or any group that wants to endorse the demands, endorse the campaign, uh, please reach out. I think that the campaign is looking for as many endorsements as possible. If you want to help out, you can volunteer with Communities Not Cuts, put in your email that this is the this is the issue that you're interested in helping out with. I'm sure that there'll be ways in which your, your help and your labor can be mobilized. Um, so I want to thank everybody for the, the thoughts that they shared today. Thanks, David, Robbie, Jesslyn. Our producer is John. Um, and in terms of keeping up with Solidarity Winnipeg, we have an Instagram, Solidarity Winnipeg, we have a Facebook group, Solidarity Winnipeg, or Facebook page, sorry, not a group. Um, and there you can find all of our upcoming events. We have an educational upcoming in December. 
Not sure what the date is yet, but it's all about building a political organization. Uh, we also have a newsletter. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, info at solidaritywinnipeg.ca. Um, and I think that's everything. Well, the, uh, yeah, the educational is on the 17th of December. It'll be at uh, 7 p.m. And sure. uh, we'll have a Facebook event up for that sometime, uh, you know, in the next uh, week or so. So check it out. Sounds good. Great. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the groundwork for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean an organization of eco-socialist organizers who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, educate people to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism.